Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Let's play a little game of Cocktail College Guess Who. If I said today's cocktail contains three ingredients that almost every bar stocks, is simple to prepare and almost impossible to mess up, and includes Campari as its base, I'm imagining your response would be, didn't we already cover the Negroni? Indeed we have, dear and astute listener, but a major clue was actually lurking right there in the episode name. Today's drink is not the Negroni, but its precursor, the Americano. As with the Negroni, multiple theories pervade regarding its origins and name, though I particularly enjoy the one that throws a heavy helping of shade at American palates. And I think an honorable mention should also go to the Italian pugilist Primo Carnera, otherwise known as the Ambling Alp. One final thing I like about the Americano's ties to the Negroni is the fact that even though the former inspired the latter, these days, if someone doesn't know what an Americano is, you simply tell them it's a Negroni with sparkling water in place of gin. I don't know. Enjoy the way that the stock of certain cocktails rises and falls, seemingly without rhyme or reason. Anyway, we'll get into all of that and more today with LA-based Nicholas O'Connor, the director of mixology and culinary arts at Apotheque Mixology. Nick's decades-long career has seen him hold roles as a barista, which is apt considering the other drink we call an Americano, and work with a cachaça producer. He's now been with the Apotheque team for 15 years. In his 1956 jazz swing classic, Tu Vofala Americano, Renato Carosone said words to the effect of, if you drink whiskey and soda, you'll feel a disturba, a hangover. But there ain't no danger of that today, listener. Not when you're sipping Americanos and strapping up for 12 heavyweight rounds. The Cocktail College Podcast. We're joined today in the studio, figuratively speaking, by Nicholas O'Connor. Nick, thanks so much for joining us, man. Looking forward to, to digging deep on the Americanos with you today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Very excited. Very excited. Um, you know, I, I think I said this when we had a call about this previously. The first thing I think about when I'm imagining this drink is that Americano song. What is it? You know, the Italiano Americano, that one, the classic. Americano, Americano, Americano. <laughs> That's the one. Sure. We'll see if we can't put that in the intro. For sure. It also had that really annoying like club version remix about 10, 15 years ago that was everywhere. The like the, the beep, yeah, the beep, really up tempo one that like Every yeah, DJ it had was, to play. Oh, yeah, that was not, you know, I'm not into that. But that was right as I was kind of starting to go out, visit bars and stuff. And and like you said, yeah, people used to do like the old robot dance to that one. I don't know. I feel like unlike this drink, that's something we could comfortably leave in the past and never revisit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. If someone tells me, I'll hear it a couple more times before my time is through. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Uh, what about this drink, though? What about the Americano? Um, thoughts for yourself when it comes to coming into this, coming onto the show, talking about this drink, before we dive into like the components and the history, but just your relationship with this one. Um, where, where, where do you stand with this? Well, so the Americano for me is, I think, by far my favorite low ABV cocktail, you know? whether we're doing spritzes or things like that. Like I just, I love the Americano and it's sort of a really a go-to for me. So I, I have a lot of, you know, drinking experiences I, where um, lower ABV really behooves me and really helps the situation because I could, you know, drink for longer or I have a lot more day to go. You know, it's my favorite daytime drink. Um, and I just think it's a great, it's, it's very complex, but it's still really easy. Um, it's a true aperitif. So it like, you know, before a meal, it's great before a conversation, um, and it's just an easy drink that also, you know, 95% of the bars will have all three ingredients that you need. So it's just readily accessible and it's easy. And I can, you know, it probably does affect me after a couple, but, you know, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I love that how, how versatile that cocktail is. And, and and like you said, you know, much, much less so than, than, than a Negroni, for example. And I say that too, because oftentimes, basically, when people talk about Americanos, they're just talking about it possibly being this uh, this inspiration for the Negroni. And I don't know, maybe we'll get into that on the history front. But like you said, this is this is a lower ABV one. I think too, fantastic fodder for this show because seems simple enough, but I'm going to bet 
that someone like yourself, someone with many years in the industry, you got ways that you can, you know, you got things that you're focusing on. You got ways that you can dial this up, that you can elevate the drink or you can make sure that it's on point. It's not just splash of this, splash of that. I, I'm imagining here we're, we're going to get into those, all of those topics. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so fun. It's, it's great. You brought up the Negroni because I actually, you know, the Americano precursor is, is the precursor to the Negroni, but I got to it. And I'm sure a lot of people too, with how popular Negroni's become, um, came from the Negroni first and then went backwards. It's, you know, I found about the Negroni first and I would have a bunch of Negronis. And then when I found about the Americano, I was like, oh, wow, this is such a like lighter, easier version. So a lot of that range that you can use with the Negroni also, I think translates so well. You know, I love doing, we do at uh, my bar here in Los Angeles, we do a uh, Lapsung Suchung infused sweet vermouth. So we actually take Antica formula, Carpano, and we infuse that with the Lapsung, which is a smoked uh, Chinese black tea. And it's almost like, I would say it's an equivalent to say like a, a Oaxacan Negroni, mm-hmm. right? So you get that smoky overtones, but yeah, but the, uh, the effervescence and the bubbles really pop through and you get this like smoky current underneath. It's really nice. So yeah, there's just really a lot of ways to play with it because you have your classic sweet notes and your bitter mm-hmm. notes and then sort of that pop of effervescence. So there's a lot of room in there to add floral notes, you know, juicy, more citrus notes. You can, so you can add a lot of stuff in there. It's really fun to play with. Mm-hmm. And plus, since you're using that lower ABV, I think everything blends a little bit easier too, especially if you want to just play around at home. Nice. And, and great point from yourself too on this being like, I'm going to assume the story is the same for a lot of us, unless you maybe spent a lot of time in Italy or you're from Italy, that we probably found this drink by way of the Negroni. And then, but it is the precursor or believed to be, and then, hey, like, we'll get into components in a second, but you remove the sparkling component of this and then you have another drink completely, which is the Milano Torino, I believe. And it's like, it's funny this way that the Negroni template has built upon these other cocktails, but we these days discover them in, in reverse. And I think that speaks to a lot about just the success of the Negroni in recent years. Oh, well, the Negroni is is kind of singular at this point. I think in cocktail culture, like, you know, things like the Manhattan, the old fashioned, if we're talking like the, you know, Mount Rushmore of cocktails, right? The Negroni is, I think, is something that's now up there on the, but has come in the last like 10, 15 years with sort of uh, people paying really more attention to what they drink and, and sort of, I think the American palate also expanding and wanting more, you know, bitter notes, more savory notes. And the Negroni is just, it's kind of like, you know, because it has such old history, but it's almost like it's having such a new renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, at our bar now, we make more Negronis than we make uh, Manhattan's and Old Fashions, which is crazy because I never wow. thought that would happen. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's margaritas because tequila and agave is just going crazy right now. And then the Negroni, that's like <laughs> pretty crazy. That's wild. And And again, as well, like we did touch upon this in our Negroni episode whereby the story goes, you can believe it or not if you want, but the story goes that Count Emilio... He, he's sitting there, he orders an Americano and he's, and he's saying as well, but I want it stronger. So you bring in the gin. But again, this speaks to where we are today, which is like that you can sell the Americano as a drink to guests by saying, oh, hey, you like a Negroni? Are oh, you going to love the Americano? It, it's funny, right? That the, the roles have reversed and, and things have turned on their heads. Oh, definitely. And, and it makes sense, too, if you look at the history. Like, uh, it's either Count Negroni or for General Negroni as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I know he had spent a bunch of time in America. So then going back to Italy, he had sort of caught on to the trend of using these full, robust cocktails from America and was like, I want to do that to an Italian classic. So it lets, it's, instead of watering it down with the, with the soda water, let's add gin and try it with air. And it's sort of, mm-hmm. that's where it comes from. And that makes a, that, you know, you hear a lot of conflicting stories or whatever, you know, it's, we're talking over a hundred years ago now, but it, um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, just in sort of the reverse, you know, so it's funny. Every time you order an Americano or not every time, but a lot of the time I order an Americano, the first question I get is like, oh, I'm sorry, we don't serve coffee because <laughs> <laughs> everyone sort of thinks it's that it's, it's the Americano, which is, you know, it's espresso with water. And the reason that drink came around was because, you know, we, we drink our, we're used to our coffees, right? So when uh, Americans would come over to Italy, they would have the espresso and it was just too strong. So they wanted to water it down. So I think it's kind of funny that, you know, our, we like our coffee watered down. They like it strong. And then they like their cocktails and their aperitifs, you know, lower. And we like our cocktails big and boozy. Mm-hmm. So it's funny how they've, it's sort of been born through both and just everything they call the American, right? The, American yeah. product, the, the lighter <laughs> stuff. And then it comes through. So it's just interesting how that's all come about. Yeah. And of course, you know, look, 
ingredients. If people don't know it, I'm sure they do, or they could have guessed it from the conversation to this point, but it's Campari, sweet vermouth, and sparkling water, right? We'll get into those. But here's a question for you related to what you're just talking about there. Is that where the inspiration for this drink's name comes from, the idea of diluting something down? Is that something we know? Or what can you tell us about the history of this drink? Um, well, there was, so I, I did a bit of deep diving before this, and there was two stories that um, I sort of came about. And there's one that I'm pretty sure it's like 90% of the stories I read. And then there's one the story that I like better, so I'll do that one second. But um, yeah, the first story, it's called an Americano because, you know, it was originally called, you brought this up earlier, uh, the Milano-Torino which was the mixture of, um, you know, Campari uh, and then vermouth from Torino. I think it was Punta Mess at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Turin, Torino is great. That's also where Carpano comes from. Uh, so really a great place for vermouth. And that was the original drink. And that's around, I, I believe, like around eight, in the 1860s. Um, it's actually a Gaspar Campari uh, who created Campari, had a cafe Campari. Um, and he started mixing these two things together. And that was the original of the drink. And then, you know, you see the name Americano start to pop up in the 20s and 30s. And it's kind of uh, coinciding when prohibition began in America. And a lot of Americans ex- uh, would travel to Europe, go to Europe, move to Europe, uh, and would just start consuming cocktails at a huge rate. Uh, and then the Americano was just incredibly popular with Americans. Um, and, you know, I think Italian palate, like I can't speak for all Italians, but Italian palate uh, is generally loves big, sweet flavors, big, bitter flavors. And I think that was always a little bit a lot. So adding the club soda helps to, you know, lighten those expressions a little bit. Uh, but you still do get that bitter and that sweet. Nice. So that's around the 20s, you know, 20s, 30s. And then the name we assume, therefore, just comes from like, Maybe it was a drink. That All people- these Americans keep drinking this drink. <laughs> <laughs> we can't get these these. Damn Americans won't stop drinking all the vermouth and Campari. Let's call it Americano. But but with the with the soda, right for refreshing. And I I want to bet maybe that's because like our culture over here, certainly over time and probably back then, not as accustomed to bitter complex flavors like the combination of Campari and sweet vermouth. So maybe just adding that adding that sparkling water makes it more palatable for for the Americans visiting in their hordes. Yeah, for our, for our simple American palates. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Before you go into the next one here, because, you know, you, you, your preferred tale, can I propose an idea here? If, I'm going to say, if we were reinventing this story in 2023, do we think that the drink that becomes known throughout Italy as the Americano is the Aperol Spritz? Because obviously... The Italians, they like their spritzes, they like their Aperol spritzes, but, you know, like, we have this notion that you go anywhere in Italy and you can get an Aperol spritz. You go to Napoli, you go to Sicily, and they're drinking these things, but that's really not a part of their culture. I mean, Italy being so regional as it is, like, I I don't know, right? Like, I find it interesting that this drink, the Aperol spritz, that's taken on a new life here in the U.S., then we're changing how things are being done in Italy. Does that make sense? Does that track any of that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and I'm sure it's interesting because you know Aperol actually advertises the spritz. You know when you when you when they're you know when you buy a bottle of Aperol, there's often that little tag on it that has like the like the recipe for a spritz in it. So I think they're also trying to push that to the American culture because mm-hmm. they you know it's a good way to move and sell that. And I do think that going along the same lines of watering down the, the espresso to make the Americano, this having the club soda, you know, an Aperol spritz is, you know, Aperol to Campari mm-hmm. is even a little bit, you know, less bitter, more sweet. I would say it sure. leans more to the sweeter side and you get less of the gentian, less of the bitter notes. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it makes sense that it would, you know, sort of hark back to that. We're trying to, you know, make things easier for the tourists, for the people coming through. Whereas it might not have the same relevance to, you know, like locals. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, I'd be curious. I'd be curious to know what like true Italian barmen think of the Aperol Spritz at this point. Well, I bring that one up as well. I have the slight advantage here of having, um, I think I can say this. Yeah, I'll say it. Anyway, I've got a writer uh, from Italy working on a, a piece about this for Vine Pair. So I uh, just want to lay that marker uh, down here in case any, you know, in case anyone else hears this and they're like, oh, that's a good story idea. We'll try and jump you. We're on this already. We're covering it. And I had that insight beforehand. <laughs> but yeah, you'll see that soon on vinepair.com. Keep a lookout for it. Nice. So uh, yeah, so the second story I like, which seems a little 
a little more far-fetched, and I only found it one place, but um, in 1933, so around the time we're starting to see the Americana written down, uh, Primo Carnera became the first Italian heavyweight champion of the world. Okay. So he came to he came to America. He won the belt first time. So when he came back, and you know, back in the 30s, it's still a big deal now. But the, you know, the heavyweight championship was bigger. There was no basketball. There's no football. Right. You know, baseball is national pastime. But you know, being the heavyweight champion is is huge. We're talking the most famous people in the world. So when Primo Carnera from Italy won it, he went back, and I guess that was his favorite drink. So everyone like during his sort of celebration tour of back in Italy. Everyone would drink the Americano or the Milano Torino, if the story holds true, back then. And to honor him that he had conquered America, they called it the Americano. Nice. Like his drink and he had conquered and won the, the heavyweight champion. So I kind of like that, that it was like a pugilist, an Italian pugilist like celebration tour got the name. But it's much more likely that it's just because so many Americans ordered it. <laughs> hey, I like this story. And by the way, you bring up one of my old time favorite words there, pugilist. What a word. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Doesn't get doesn't get enough play these days. I don't, not that I have a lot of a lot of occasions to use that word in, but I like that one. I don't know. Well, I think it's what's interesting for the term pugilist. I love the word as well, uh, but there is a sort of positive connotation to like beating people up for a living. So maybe <laughs> so that, that might have caused a slight downturn in usage because uh, you know. Let's all have an Americano and get along. Yeah. You know? <laughs> nice. Very nice. Um, before we do a jump into those ingredients, though, just kind of across the board, um, as a bar operator, is this a cocktail? You mentioned the popularity of the Negroni before. Is this one that sees a lot of traction or is it more, I don't know, more of a more of a summertime thing? You, you're also there in LA. So, I mean, it's, it's summer, what, like nine months of the year at least. But um, It's always summer. Yeah. Where do you feel like this stems? Well, so we actually, we have two bars in New York too. Yeah. Uh, so it's two bars in New York, one here in LA. And um, I'll, I'll say this, you know, uh, my bar is definitely uh, more of a nighttime type thing. Mm-hmm. We don't open until five or six o'clock at night. We always have a very lively atmosphere. Um, and you, honestly, the Americano almost never gets ordered. Really? You know, I'd say I've made a handful. I ordered a lot, but I'd say it, it's, I've ordered, it's been ordered maybe a handful in the last five years. I can't even remember the last one anyone ordered. Um, but I've done a lot of work, uh, especially consultant work with um, restaurants. And it gets m- ordered much more during the daytime or with food, I find. That makes sense. Yeah, the sort of nighttime drinker doesn't go too much to it. I um, A lot of times, though, I'll have people come up to the bar and it is evening or later towards the end of the night. And they want something like you know, not just low ABV, but just something lighter and something easier. Uh, and I'll often like offer up an Americano or a riff on an Americano um, to keep the ABV down, to keep people going. Uh, so, so I make them more than they get ordered. I'll say it, tell you that. And I have had a couple of people be like, wow, I love this drink. Like, how can I order this again? Mm-hmm. And I'll give them sort of a little breakdown of what the Americano is. And generally it's, it's gotten easier and easier because you just tell them, he's like, you know what a groni is, right? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah. So it's like that, but without the you know, with club soda instead of gin, like, oh, okay. Nice, nice. And hey, what about that, that, that food pairing option there? Because those, you know, these, again, we spoke about Campari, sweet vermouth. These are complex ingredients. And then you're bringing those together. There's a sweetness, there's a bitterness, herbaceous. Like, how food friendly is this of a cocktail? Oh, very, very much so. It's true. You know, it is truly an aperitif cocktail, which, you know, aperitifs are to spike the palate. You know, get the, get the uh, all the juices flowing in the belly and get you excited and hungry to eat. There's also with the bitter and the sour notes that come through it, uh, the little bit of sour and then the sweet notes really do to sort of drive hunger and like um, get you to salivate a little and want to want to start eating. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but that so you you'd gear it more to like pre dinner with some bites versus this is something maybe I can have alongside a starter or an appetizer or that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I think st- either st- beforehand or during the appetizer, starting it out. You know, I like to start with a nice little sprit- uh, spritz, a nice little Americano, um, either right before or during the appetizers. And then I like to move into wine for the main course, you know. Nice. Um, so I, 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 yeah, there's something about, the, you know, getting the bubbles in there and uh, some of that bitter notes. It's really nice to then go into the food and then allow the food and the wine later on to sort of pair together. And here's another little um, detour for us too. So... Obviously, last year we saw the Negroni Spagliato like really take off in popularity again. But the whole this whole thing that everyone in the bar world was like, "What the hell?" Because they were like, "Has to be." They were like, "I like my Negroni Spagliato with Prosecco," and it's like, 
that's how it's made. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, but well, it was that it was that viral clip, right? The one right. from uh, yeah, so, House of Dragons. Yeah, exactly. Like, Spagliato <laughs> with Prosecco. So now everyone, everyone has, and I, I must admit that the way she said it, I wanted one immediately. Like she did say it great. I, I tell you what, she sold it. Yeah, but yeah, but you don't you don't have to specify the exactly. <laughs> exactly. But have you ever tried this drink with Prosecco instead of sparkling water? Does that work? Um, I have actually, so it does work. It does bring out a little bit of a pop. I actually tried this, you know, when I knew we were going to be doing this, I, I've pretty much been drinking nothing but Americanos or variations <laughs> for the last like, two, three weeks. And I did, especially because we had to cancel once or twice. So I've like kept on it. But, uh, I did try it once or twice with, uh, champagne and, um, I, you know, going through, especially this, like how many I've had in the, it recently, I find that I actually prefer it with, um, I like mine a little bit longer and a little bit taller. I actually like it more subtle and pulled back. You know, the original recipe calls for like one ounce, like 30 ml, one ounce Campari, one ounce vermouth, and like a splash of soda. Um, so it's, you know, even in a rocks glass. So, it, you know, so it's, it is still pretty compact. You're getting a lot of the, the bitter and the sweet notes like right there and just, and just using the bubbles. But I prefer it, I prefer it tall in a Collins glass, a highball with a lot more club soda and even a, a little bit higher pour of, um, I like to do like one and a half ounce, one and a half ounce. Yeah. And then do, almost two to three ounces of soda. And I like it. I like it thin like that. Um, I like to really feel the bubbles and the bite of, I like using, you know, like Seagram's, like a tighter uh, seltzer um, and really getting more of that and, and sort of slightly dampening down the, the huge bitter and sweet notes um, and getting a little bit more out of the drink. So whether, I, well, I did like some, I liked the sort of dry notes that would come from the champagne while still getting the effervescence. I felt um, it was all a bit, it, it, with that, it's all a bit rich for me. Um, so maybe that's why I'm a true Americano, right? Like, <laughs> I like it a little more, I like it a little more thinned out. But, uh, so yeah, so it does work with the, with the effervescence, but, uh, and the, the champagne, but for me, I prefer, I think, a little bit. The classic, uh, yeah. Longer, yeah. So are you, are, sure. are you saying today on record that you've purposefully uh, delayed a couple of these cocktail college recordings because you've been enjoying this drink so much <laughs> so you're like, I want to stay on this kick. So I'm just <laughs> canceling recordings so I can drink more Americanos. Is that what's been going on here? Oh, yeah. So I was drinking Americano during the first one and then I was like, I, I faked technical difficulties just, <laughs> <laughs> just, so, I could, just, just so I could keep drinking. <laughs> How to justify extra order vermouth, extra vermouth. You know, all of a sudden, I, you know, my bar has a very specific, uh, you know, we don't carry more than four of any one expression. So we only have like four vodkas, four gins, you know, we really curate what we're presenting to people. Um, so I just have two vermouths, right. But all of a sudden for preparation of this, I ordered like five vermouths. So I have to justify that somehow. So I had to keep drinking Americanos. Well, that's, that's a really great point though. And I think, I think we can dive into this now, which is that like this section of the show, we always go ingredient by ingredient and, and we talk about them. And, and, you know, look, we mentioned the this in the Negroni episode too, but like, does it have to be Campari? And then if you're in that mindset, does that actually mean that the sweet vermouth's the more important component of this cocktail? Because the Campari's kind of non-negotiable. Where, what do you feel about that? And then lead us into that category and we'll talk about it in broader terms. But how do you feel about that thought? Sure. I actually don't, um, I don't think that Campari is essential. I like a, a red bitter is, but, uh, um, okay. Okay. I nice. don't think Campari is, uh, I think, you know, that's the cl classic way. And, you know, 95% of the times they ever have it, it's with Campari and, and it's great with Campari, nothing against Campari here, but I think, you know, I love with these cocktails that, you know, we're, you know, over a century years old, you really get to, you know, it's almost like, I feel, you know what copyright law is like a hundred years or whatever. And after that you can use the song for whatever you want or, <laughs> yep. you know, the images. And it's, I, I feel like it should be the same with cocktails. You know, it, 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 I, again, going back to the Negroni, which we've talked about a lot, but you know, even 10 years ago when we were at, um, you know, me and one of my other owners, we would go out and, uh, for lack of a better word, we try to poach bartenders, but we don't say that. We tried to go find good people. Chat with the, we, chat with the local talent. Yeah, exactly. We'd go to a bartender and we'd be like, Hey, you know, if they had good movement, you know, they looked right in the place. We just go up to them and we'd say, Hey, can you make us a Negroni? Um, and not with the specs, make the Negroni how you like the Negroni. Nice. And we found the best bartenders that we found made the Negronis that were amazing, but they made them their way. There always is a little difference. You know, you can make one, one, one and it's great, but it was those subtle little changes that they made, you know, is what separated them. So I love, you know, when you have these, these entities that have been around for so long, you should definitely play with it. Um, so as long as you're hitting, you know, if, if you're, 
you know, staying with the true sort of feeling of the drink and you're hitting those sweet notes and you're hitting those bitter notes. I don't really care what you use, you know? Before we carry on for a second there, I, I, I got to ask, not that you're doing it anymore, but hypothetically speaking, if you were doing that now, because I know that talent is hard to come by these days, you know, for many different reasons. On the record, we have never poached anyone. I know that's never happened. never poached anyone. On never the happened. That has never happened once. <laughs> if you were going to. Never lured someone away. <laughs> here's how I would have done it. You know, the old, not that we want to get into OJ here and now, but um, what I was saying is 2023, if you were doing that, would you still go with that Negroni test or would there be a different test that you would use where it might be like the final one of the audition there that they don't realize they might hypothetically be under? Well, I will say this, and this is a credit to the bartenders, uh, at least that I cross path with. I, you know, I think skill, knowledge, and ability has over the last like 10 to 15 years has just grown so much. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable, actually. Yeah. And now I, I actually wouldn't use that same test now because I think just so many people now can make a Negroni. You know, like 10, 12 years ago, if you knew how to make a Negroni and you made it your way, we knew you'd read a book, you know? Yeah. We knew you'd like done a little extra work. And, and not only that, but it's like you probably did the bare minimum to get the job and be pretty good at it. But then you also went the extra mile just to learn a little because you have that sort of interest in your craft and what you're doing. So it really set you apart a little bit. Now the Negroni is such a part of culture and bar culture that it's just like everyone should know how to make the Negroni. That doesn't necessarily make you like a top-notch bartender because mm -hmm. it should just it should just be part of your repertoire. So what would be a better candidate for that drink? Now, see, now I think, well, it's great. So it, it, it does depend on where you are a little bit. But with the way bars have expanded now and the amount of ingredients and how much stuff is made in-house, now I almost leave it up as a bespoke cocktail. Because uh, okay. I'll drink anything. They're all my friends. I like sweet, sour, bitter, spicy. I like gin, vodka. I like it all, right? So I'll leave that up to the bartender. And it's like, make me what you want to make. And if there's a confidence in the way they make and deliver it, and it tastes good and has a palate, like, I, th I think it really shows you know, a confidence in the bartender and what they can do. So I, I think, it, you know, unless you're going to like a dive bar or something where they don't have a range of ingredients, I think there's just so much more that people can do now. Mm -hmm. You know, back in the past, you'd go somewhere and the bar would be a nice place, but they just, they wouldn't have the range of ingredients or cocktails or whatever their menu was, which is like five classics or something. You know, now you go and almost every place has like 10 of their own signature cocktails and all this stuff. So it's really fun. And it's it, wild. And, Good times. Yeah. Oh, great times. It's mm -hmm. amazing. And, it, you know, with that, with the bartenders getting better and better. So as I think, you know, I, I touched on this earlier, I think just the general palate of the bar going patron is just so much better than it used to be. And has allowed so much more freedom within the glass. And that's what, that's what I have most fun with is just what we're doing in the glass. And I, I really, you know, I order a lot of Americanos during the day and stuff, but I don't really have a go-to order these days. I just, mm -hmm. I want to like experience the moment, the cocktail, the ambiance and what people are working on. So I, like 90% of my orders are off either a, a signature menu or a bespoke from someone that's working. Bartender's choice. Nice. Yeah. All right, let's get back to that Campari then or the bitter red aperitivo category. Um, look, I think for the purposes of this episode and, and, and our listeners and the folks that, you know, tune into this, I reckon Campari, we're good on. We know the history. We've covered it in other cocktails, in other episodes before. We're good with that. So I would love to hear some alternatives that you've come across here, what you're looking for from those ingredients um, and, and how they work in this drink. And also, yeah, are they all Italian made, but from competing brands or are there some American made examples that you've come across that you're like, wow, this is, this is cool. This is a good substitute for, for Campari and the Americano. Yeah. So uh, with sort of alternatives for Campari, if I want a bit of like a bigger flavor, because Campari is really nice, you get the bitter and bold in there. Um, but if I want a little bit heavier, especially because I, as I mentioned earlier, I like a little bit more soda water in there. Well, sometimes I want a little bit more bitterness, a, a bigger drink that comes through. I'll use like um, Contrado bitters, mm. which is, uh, it's done with a, it, that's done with a brandy base. So it already just has like a heavier sort of uh, side to it, which... I, I really enjoy sometimes because it gives it a little more weight. It, it, it stands with the vermouth a little bit more. Yeah. I think really pulls the flavor of soup. So I really like the Contrato. And then, um, you know, sometimes I'll use something that's a little bit lighter than Campari, you know, like uh, Capoletti. Nice. Or, you know, uh, Select, which is really good, uh, which is from Montenegro. I like that. I like the Select as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a real nice one. And they, 
they um well you know they they also write they do their aperol spritz alternative with uh the cheeky little olive garnish i like that yeah definitely definitely and uh and there's some really cool stuff too uh outside of italy um I, the thing I've gotten, I only tasted it about a, uh, a year ago, but I think it's from, I believe it's either from New York or Chicago, but it's called uh, Faccia Bruto. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which I or think means like the ugliest. If you, if you don't mind me, yeah, Faccia Bruto, I think they call it, but uh, if you don't Faccia, mind me coming yeah. in there. Um, but yeah, f- phenomenal product that. Oh, I, it's one of the best. It's really awesome. It's, yeah, it's one of the best new products I've had actually in a long time. I don't know how new it is, but it was new to me. And when I first tasted it, I love the branding too, the coloring. It's got a great smell. It looks Italian, uh, and right? it's really balanced. Like the branding. Oh, for sure. I couldn't believe it. When I looked on the back and it said like made in Brooklyn, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> like, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, and it's got, that one's really balanced. I love how it's sweet notes and it's bitter notes are really like in the middle and balanced. Like to me, Campari will come a little more on the bitter side. And Vacchio Bruto still has that deep, bitter, that herbal sort of like feel, but then it also has just a really nice sweet balance to it. It makes a really clean, clean, easy one. Um, the, the one other one, just to shout out, which is actually much lighter, uh, is I like the Lo-Fi, their red bitter, uh, their aperitif, Lo-Fi aperitifs. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I believe Campari comes in at like 20, 23, 24% uh, alcohol, whereas uh, the Lo-Fi, I think, is down at like 16, 17%. Uh, so it's even, it's again, it's a little lighter little lower and when i um about to eat before i eat a meal or something like that and i don't want to really fill up I'll, I'll try i'll go with maybe something a little lighter like that uh which has also more sort of floral notes to it which i think really come out and aid with the sweet vermouths really nicely nice so what about those vermouths you mentioned earlier uh infusing carpano antica with 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 tea there remind us of the tea yeah it's the lap sang Chung tea it's a smoked chinese black tea so i believe i'm not 100 percent sure on this process, but I think what they do is they actually take the tea and then they bury it and burn like pine uh, needles over the top and it gets this huge smoky, like dark. And it's, it's a black tea. It's, it's a ceremonial grade tea in China. So it's not used all that often in, in regular Chinese life. But uh, ever since I found it around 10 years ago, I, I love using it as a sort of smoky, um, like smoky sort of side note, you know, especially with how popular mezcal has become, Yeah, you know, 10, 15 years ago, much less mezcal around. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of my my like mezcal hack would be to use lapsung sucho because it gives it this great smoky overtone. Yeah, but now there's a mezcal on every corner. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice, but just in terms of uh, of vermouth again in general there because you know you take a for example a martini rossi or a dolan rouge, you compare that to a carpano. My God, man, the 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 carpano is such a big hitter, right? And it has this the this kind of like baking spice kind of wintry profile for myself at least that's that's where i see it um what's your thinking for this one are you using that because it's robust yeah well even the mouthfeel of carpano right like yeah. the antico form of carpano or coqui de torino uh they're, they're just much bigger they're all secret recipes so we're not quite sure what's in it but you know they're using probably a bigger uh botanical profile um you know they're testing a little higher in abv and they yeah they have that mouthfeel that richness uh, that really comes through where something like dolan rouge which i love like which is much lighter, much easier. I love Dolan too. Yeah, um, and I think that they they all work great. And again, it's it's about where you maybe you want to be with that cocktail at that moment. You know, if you want something that's a little bubblier, you know, you want to have maybe three or four, or you haven't started drinking yet. You know, go with something a little lighter with the Dolan, and you can match that with like the Lo-Fi or even the Facchio Bruto, which is a little more balanced, I think, than the Campari. Um, or if you know this is your this is going to be your cocktail of the night, your after dinner, you want things a little bit heavier, maybe cut down on your soda water a little, and you know use a Coqui de Torino or the Antica Formula Carpano, um, and you know match that with you know your Campari or your Contrato, you know bigger flavors. Um, you know you, you really can play and mix around with it, and and I, I don't think there's necessarily a favorite way for me either. It depends on sort of my moment and my spot. Mm-hmm. And then final ingredient here, and the, here is this is one that I really want to get into for a second because you mentioned Seagram's earlier as your 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 club soda, your sparkling water component. Um, I spent a little bit of time between LA recently and New York. Uh, I'm based in New York, but I've been out there. One thing I noticed: Mineragua. It's everywhere, and I've never come across it in New York. And people in New York, they're they're all about Topo Chico at the moment, but. I see Mineragua everywhere there. Is that the is that the cool kids water over there? Yeah, well, the the Latin influence, the Mexican influence on uh, like Southern California, San Diego, Los Angeles, which have amazing cocktail programs. Yeah. 
but yeah, the influence is, is just so heavy. You know, it's interesting not to jump too far away from club soda here, but you know, I'd say it switched about three, four years ago, like just before the pandemic and then coming out of it. Um, you know, our top sellers on the menu were always vodka, right? Yeah. Always vodka and maybe a whiskey, uh, maybe a whiskey would sneak in there. And it's been about, I think the last three, four years, all of our top sellers, and that's in New York and in Los Angeles are either tequila or uh, uh, mezcal based. And it's really interesting. And I think that trend's moving too, especially in LA and a lot of the flavors, you know, you know, I find so many drinks out here that have like tamarind in them yeah. and using tomatillos and using very Latin flavors. And I think the uh, middle agua, and, and it's funny, I brought up Seagram's earlier, which is kind of my favorite. And Seagram's is a really biting. It's like you take one sip of Seagram's like, ah, you can't drink like multiple sips at once because <laughs> it's really crisp, really biting. And I think middle agua has that same, it almost burns a little bit. It's so mm-hmm. uh, carbonated. And whereas something like, you know, traditionally this drink and like, the Americana was actually f- like featured in a James Bond book. You know, it was it was the first drink he had and everything. And he just did a splash like Perrier, which is almost the opposite. Tight little bubbles, you know, not as much, really light. And it's it's funny that, yeah, I think we've sort of moved now to have these like big, big bubbles and a lot more um, carbonation. And I actually, I like it. I like it. And I think that's what people love about Topo Chico as well here. They claim that it's it, it stays effervescent for longer. It's got this attacking bubbles too. But again, I'm not sure how, how much that's proliferated on the West Coast here. Obviously, it was a Texas thing originally. But yeah, folks are going crazy for Topo right. Chico in New York. I also think too, when you have a higher carbonation level and it has a little more effect like that, it, 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 it sort of slows the, the watering down process a little bit. Um, you, you know, like you had mentioned, it maybe stays bubbly for a little bit longer. Um, you have less of, with the extra carbonation, you have less of it uh, burning off uh, and it, it waters the drink down less, which I think is great. So you get tr- some of those truer flavors coming through. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Now talk us through the preparation of this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to tie yourself down to one recipe and two definite or three definite components for this. Can you talk us through this as if you were making it for us in the bar? We're one of these few people that's coming into your bar and asking one, but few for now at least. Uh, We'll see what happens after this. But yeah, how would you make that for us? Can you talk us through? Well, so the first question I'd ask, honestly, if if you walked in and you said, hey, I'd love an Americano, I'd be like, great order. I'd be like, (laughs) I can totally make you an Americano, but would you like me to make some sort of riff on it? Because we have, you know, we try to be fancy. So I'd be like, do you want me to make some sort of fun riff on that? Like play with that. And if they were like, no, I just want Americano. I'd be like, great. Still a great order. Like still a great order. Uh, and I would, I would do it. So the way I would do it, you know, I, I had mentioned earlier, you know, the classic recipe is one ounce Campari or red bitter, one ounce sweet vermouth to, and then splash club soda um, and or mineral water. And from there, there's a myriad of, I've, I've seen everything from any type of fruit or uh, zest you can think of, you know, or a slice of orange, orange zest, lemon zest. So that's sort of the basic. But for me, I, I, I prefer it with a little more of everything, like I sort of mentioned earlier. So instead of, and as, instead of having it in a rocks glass and that, that pour of what, around like two and a half, three ounces cocktail, I like to do an ounce and a half of each. So um, an ounce and a half of the sweet vermouth, an ounce and a half of the bitter, and then a hitting about two ounces, I'd say, of club soda. I usually just top with it, mm-hmm. but I'd say it'd be around between two and three ounces. And I like to serve that in a Collins glass or a highball. Um, and then I prefer, I like the little wedge of orange because I like, I prefer the orange zest to the lemon zest because I like how it's a little bit warmer, uh, a little bit bigger and a little less tart. So it sort of, it, it sort of warms up and I think pairs uh, much better with especially the vermouth. Um, and then I like it in an orange uh, little piece because I like to eat the orange. I, I, yeah. you know, I'm just a sucker for that. I, want, <laughs> I like interactive garnishes. You know, I want I want a garnish that I can take a bite out of. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's how I would, I would perform it. And you're serving that on the rocks? Yes, definitely. So ideal world, would you have one of these nice big spears of ice in that Collins glass or would you just go a couple cubes? So yeah, so we have really nice, I, I love people's ice game. Uh, people have gotten crazy with the ice game and, and I think it's great. And, you know, uh, the less surface area, the less rate of dilution, I totally get and understand me at, at our bars. We, um, we have a, an amazing, we have a cold draft system. We do the one ounce cubes and, uh, we just sort of decided in each of our locations, especially the New York ones where there's no space that we wanted to allocate, uh, 
more of that space instead of having that that specific ice program and either making our own ice or or ordering the really expensive ice we just stick with the one ounce cubes mm-hmm. uh, I, I i like their rate of dilution i don't think it's too much and, it, and it's good enough ice that so I, we don't actually do anything with the specialty ices and, and i think that's great but i don't think it's essential i i think it, it's aesthetically really pleasing and mm-hmm. it's really cool if you have that kind of thing but I think just some standard good cubes. You know, if you don't want that like pebble ice, chipped ice, cube, whatever you want to call that stuff, because that'll dilute so quickly. Not to mention you don't have to put so much to fill in the glass. But um, if you have some solid like one inch cubes, yeah. um, I, I find those work great. Amazing. Sorry, nothing against the ice programs out there. I love that. <laughs> no. You know, I got, I took a class. I got to cut one of the bricks. It was really fun. It's just, yeah, you know, we do with our, we created pretty much everything in house uh, except the the liquor itself. So we have like a dedicated prep guy who does like 35 hours a week of just prepping. Uh, so we keep him juicing rather than cutting ice. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah. And like you say, you know, those cold draft cubes as well. They're, they're, they're such high quality too that, you know. Oh, it's amazing. If you, if you got them available, that's, there's nothing to worry about. Right. Yeah, definitely. So any final thoughts for you today on the Americano before we move into the next section of the show? Nothing too much we haven't covered other than it's just... It's just an awesome drink. I love, you know, I, I really geek out on the history of the cocktails and where we got to where we got to. And um, it's just fun to watch how, you know, region, tradition, and culture can dictate how th- things get, uh, you know, come up and then it reaches a global scale and then all the interpretations of that. And I just think the Americano fits on so many different levels of its historic, its classic. Uh, it's got a cool backstory. It really comes from the region it comes from. It's incredibly Italian, yet it has this American influence to it. I think it's just, it has a ton of history to it. And I think that's really fun um, when you can sort of know more background to what you're actually consuming. Yeah. Because instead of, you know, it just rounds everything out. So I, I think it's just great. It's one of those, you know, we're not getting any more cocktails like that. You know, there might be some weird Jerry Thomas thing that gets unearthed. It becomes popular again, like the penicillin or something. But there's not too many more of these like iconic, iconic cocktails, you know? So it's pretty great. Fantastic. All right, then. Let's do that. Let's move into the next section of the show or get to know yourself a little bit more as a bartender and a drinker, beginning with question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Yeah, so I touched on this a little bit earlier. We only carry four expressions of, of, of any type. Um, so we really curate what we present to our customer. You know, and we have a pretty expansive menu of, of custom drinks and, and most of our orders come off of those, the, off of those drinks. So uh, with our back bar, we want to keep it simple, uh, but also present some fun things. Uh, and as I'd also mentioned recently, um, how popular mezcal and tequila are right now, anything agave based. Uh, so I'd say that really um, takes over in, in the back of our bar. And I found that we've started to sell so much more of that that it's moving a lot. But again, we only carry four types of any one kind. So we have a very balanced back bar. But I will say the bottles that are flying off the shelf would be your mezcals and your tequilas. And not only on like a base level, even our, our top shelf ones, the more expensive, the, uh, the better stuff. People are really, really like going out there and trying it and, fi- and falling in love with tequila, that, the agave plant. It's too bad it takes them so long to grow. I know. You know? <laughs> then you start getting into wild agave species of varieties in Mezcal. You're like, 14 years. Wow. All right. <laughs> Drink that one by the half ounce. It's sadly unsustainable too. It's it's get yeah. your Mezcal and tequila now because five years from now, it's, everything's going to be double price. Like it's going to go crazy. Yeah, it is wild, this agave boom. But yeah, such a fascinating, incredible category of spirits there. Um, question number two. Yeah, definitely. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? I think so. I was really thinking about this one for a long time. My first initial thought was the jigger, right? Because mm-hmm. if you don't measure, you don't measure. But I think when it came down to it, I actually think the most underappreciated thing is is hospitality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of weird to put that, but I, I feel like there's so much more than just what goes into your mouth. You know. It's all, it's, it's all about when you go to a bar and you want to have a great cocktail, it, it helps when there's good music playing, there's good lighting, there's good mood, you know, the temperature's right, everything's feeling good. And, you know, you place your order and you get a nice bartender who's attentive, gets it to you, and uh, is nice, doesn't have to be over the top, oversell you. But having that whole experience, and that interaction makes everything taste that much better. And I think so much we get as bartenders, and I, I've, I've done this over the years, especially, you know, at the end of a six-hour shift, but... It, it, we get sort of bogged down in, in, in sort of 
everything that's happening, all you have to do as a bartender, and then also nailing your specs and making the perfect drink and all that. And you sort of forget that it's almost like a dance between you and the customer, or at least it should be. And so I, I really find that like hospitality and, and interaction and communication about what you're doing and how you're doing it uh, really goes a long way and, and really o- helps to open up and create regulars and just make that amazing experience. So I, you know, you know, I think a lot of bartenders can really like nail the specs and that's a great tasting drink, but there's more to it than just measurements. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a lot. So it's funny. I started with the bigger, <laughs> I started with the jigger, which was specifically measurements. And I was like, you know what? No, it's not about that. It's the <laughs> other way. And you have to have both. But I, I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, hospitality, it's sort of, you know, if all I did was just get people drunk, like what have I been doing for the last 18 years, right? Mm-hmm. But, but no, we're providing an escape for people. We're providing a, you know, a relaxing time or, or a break from whatever ails them or whatever they're doing. And uh, you just, I don't know. I think that's really, really ah, Great point. Well made and, and great advice. Speaking of which, question number three here. What's the most important piece of advice that you've received while working in this industry? So it, it does go, I it does go along the lines of what I was just talking about. Is that it's it's two, you know, of the the great mentors that I've had, you know, throughout, um, you know, all of them were really about creating a full moment, like really creating everything. You know, like at our bar, we design our own candles. So like we control the smell. You know, we curate all our playlists. We, you know, we really try to create this sort of magic environment and, you know, elevating it. And it's not just about the cocktail, you know, you know, it's so easy just to put your head down in the book and just study or just come up with new drinks or just come up with all that. But it's, it's really about how everyone is affected by it and how everyone moves, you know, that advice coupled with, you'll always have another customer next, just keep going. I think those are the two. So it's like, make the best of each little moment. But don't get too caught up in any of it because you'll have another customer next. So just make the best out of each of those little moments because you might have, you know, one customer might actually just be turbulent. You know, there might just be issues and don't let that derail you for the next five, you know, for the next 10, you know, keep each little interaction as its own moment and, and just try to make the best of each moment and the best cocktail in that moment. And everyone will have a good time and you'll make tips too. <laughs> Very important part there. Good, good. I think definitely worth mentioning that at the end. Question number four here. Yeah. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? So this is why I canceled two episodes is because I couldn't think of the answer to this one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This this is the tough one because there's so, I like, as a degenerate bar rat of the last 20 years, that's sort of where I found my home, you know? It's my home away from home is bars. And um there's so many that have been so amazing that we've lost recently too with the pandemic and everything. Yeah. It's really sad. Uh, but if I, if I think if I had to take it back to one bar, it would actually be a bar restaurant. Uh, and it was in, um, uh, in Santa Anita uh, off of Rosemead Boulevard here in like East, East LA. It was a place called Bahuka. And it was like a Polynesian sort of Hawaiian themed bar, uh, bar and restaurant mm. that was built in like the mid fifties. Uh, and it, it's, uh, Every booth, I, I believe, I, I knew the number once. It, I think there inside of it, there was 142 aquariums. No. So like every table and booth had an aquarium behind it. Um, there was this fish up front in this giant aquarium. The fish had lived for 25 years. Her name was Nellie. And it was like this huge fish that had grown from this little thing. It was like, it'd been there for 25 years. And they served all these crazy tiki drinks and, it, it, you know, and big, you know, bad cuts of meat with pineapple on the top, that kind of thing. It, it, it wasn't necessarily the best craft in cocktail, but it was just so much fun in there. It's actually in the opening scene uh, or one of the opening scenes of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, really? The, of the Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah, it's, there's this weird Polynesian-style restaurant they're in with all these aquariums that's really dimly lit. And uh, that's Bahuka. And it closed, it closed, sadly, it closed pre-pandemic. It closed about seven years ago. And uh, the building just sits there. It's still empty. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's across from like a high school. It doesn't make any sense, but it's just, it was one of those magical places in time. And, uh, and it was one of the first bars I started going to. So I, I just, that'd be a fun last bar to go to, you know? I think that's a great answer. Yeah, for sure. All right, then final question for us today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Ooh, so this is another tough one. Uh, because again, I said this earlier, they're all my friends. They're all my mm-hmm. friends and I want to say goodbye to them all. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think, I think I would want to go to the start, which my first cocktail I ever had, 
which may or may not have been with a fake ID. We won't talk about that. <laughs> uh, but my, the first drink I ever had was a scorpion bowl. Ooh. Because I don't know. I saw it on the menu. Yeah, I saw it on the menu. It was served two, and I ordered it for myself. First drink. And uh, I just thought, I think I thought scorpion. It sounded just so cool, like a scorpion bowl, right? Little did I know, you know, there'd be gin, 151, light rum, vodka, dark rum, like <laughs> all that stuff in it. And I definitely got sick that night. Uh, but I had, um, yeah, I had a scorpion bowl and it was great. So I'd probably want to go in as I go out. Yeah. Uh, plus, I'd probably make us like, I'd probably make one that served like seven or eight because if it's my last drink, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nah, nah. And and you have a little bit of fun with it as well, setting stuff on fire potentially, you know, the the, the presentation, going out on a high. Yeah, and there's this there's this legendary bar in Los Angeles. Um, it was called Hop Louie, which is right here in the heart of Chinatown. And I actually now live, I can see it from where I live. It's closed. It closed a couple of years back, but the building's still there. It's this really iconic building. And uh, they've, I don't, I never found evidence to back this up, but they claimed to just have uh, created the Scorpion Bowl. And that's where I had had it. And the place had been open since the 40s, 50s, but I found nowhere in any research that they actually did that. I think the bartender was just saying that. <laughs> um, so, so specifically, it would be the Hop Louie Scorpion Bowl would be the last one I made. R.I.P. Hop Louie. Oh, very nice choice there for you. Oh, Nick. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a blast here chatting about the Americano, but not only the Americano. You know, we covered things like Primo Carnera, Pugilists. Ah, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Such a great time. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to the next one, man. Thanks again. Yeah. And w we need to meet up soon and have an Americano. I'll make you a Lapsung Suchong one. Oh, yeah. Over I'm in. I'm game. I'm down there. We'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll be over there in no time. See you soon. Amazing. Cheers. Okay. I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>